0: A warm welcome to Birkbeck and to the Peter Murray Memorial Lecture. My name is Leslie Topp, and I'm head of the Department of History of Art here at Birkbeck. It's my great pleasure to introduce this evening's Memorial Lecture. 50 years ago, in 1967, an eminent specialist in Italian Renaissance art and architecture called Peter Murray was hired to lead a new Department of History of Art at Birkbeck College. Birkbeck's BA in History of Art enrolled its first students in the September of the same year. And a new type of History of Art student came into being. Or rather, several new types. Where before before that, Art History students came from a fairly narrow social stratum, Birkbeck's entry into the discipline opened it up to students from a much wider range of backgrounds, incomes, ages, and life experiences. Peter Murray and his colleagues in the new department were committed to giving those students the highest quality teaching informed by current research in the field and by exposure to leading scholars from both academia and the wider world of London's great galleries and museums. It is therefore entirely appropriate that we are kicking off the program of events marking 50 years of history of art at Birkbeck with the Peter Murray Memorial Lecture. When Peter Murray died in 1992, Linda Murray, his widow and a notable Italian Renaissance scholar in her own right, established this biennial lecture as an opportunity generously funded by the Murray Bequest to uh, to host in-depth lectures by top art historians and curators. The Murray Bequest also supports a range of other activities in the department, including PhD studentship, an annual field trip to cities like Rome, Florence, Paris, and Berlin, and the costs of staff research. And we're extremely grateful to the Murray bequest for that. I'm delighted to welcome this year's Murray lecturer, Dr. Gabriele Finaldi, director of the National Gallery. Gabriele did his PhD at the Courtauld Institute on the 17th century Spanish painter Ribera, who, worked in Italy, who was a Spanish painter working in Italy, and those kinds of cross-European connections are central to his work and life. Gabriele was born into an Italian-Polish-British family in Catford in southeast London, and just chatting to him now, I was, he, he mentioned that his father did his degree here at Birkbeck in the mid-1960s in Italian and French. Unfortunately, the History of Art Department wasn't around yet for him to do it in History of Art. His first major role in the museum world was as curator of later Italian paintings and Spanish art at the National Gallery. In 2002, he moved to Madrid to the Prado Museum as deputy director for collections and research. Over the years, he has curated exhibitions in Spain, Italy, Belgium, and the US, as well as in Britain, and written catalogues and articles on Velazquez and Zubaran, Italian Baroque painting, and religious iconography. A little over two years ago, he returned to London to take up his appointment as director of the National Gallery. The National Gallery was founded in 1824 in a house on Pall Mall, one year after Birkbeck College was established as the, as the London Mechanics Institute in a pub on the Strand. And Gabriela's ambitions for the gallery have a distinctly Birkbeckian and Murrian ring to them. That is to capitalize on his institution's position in the heart of London in order to break down the barriers between art and the lives of working Londoners. His lecture for us this evening brings together the histories of the two art institutions he knows best. And it's entitled, as you can see here, How to Form National Collection, the Prado, and the National Gallery. Thank you, Gabriele.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Forgive the slightly pompous title of the lecture. You get asked so long in advance, you think, what can I do that might sound vaguely interesting? Um, So you come up with a title, and then as the days approach, you think that was a daft title to choose. But anyway, um, it'll be a little bit about what you see in the title, and it'll be a little bit about about my experience in these two uh, institutions. Um, I'd just like to start with um, uh, a a reference to Peter Murray. I I never knew him, but I was aware of him from quite a young age, because uh, for my sixth form, um, I was at school at Dulwich College and I chose to do history of art in my lower sixth year. That was in 1982. And in 1980, uh, Peter Murray had published the new catalogue of the Dalish Pictures. So I was very aware of his, uh, of his publication, and therefore aware of his uh, existence uh, when I was at school. Um, <clears throat> right, can we, can we have the lights down? Thank you very much. Um, On the 19th of November, 1819, the Prado opened its doors as the Royal Museum of Paintings. As with all things Spanish, there was a certain amount of chaos involved and the king did not actually turn up for the occasion. Uh, Richard Ford uh, would later write that Fernando VII Founded the museum because he needed to clear the Royal Palace of Paintings in order to decorate its grand rooms with the latest French wallpaper. <laughs> that was um, fake news. <laughs> what the uh, Madrid uh, Gaceta actually reported on the occasion was that the king, our Lord, an ardent, as an ardent, sorry, in an ardent desire for the good of his subjects and to instill good taste in the fine arts has been inspired to offer to the public a copious collection of Spanish and foreign paintings. The museum will serve to beautify the capital of the kingdom and contribute to the luster and splendor of the nation. It will give amateurs the occasion of honest enjoyment and provide students of drawing with the most efficacious means for advancing rapidly in their art. Um, This was not an official statement. This is what appeared in uh, a Madrid uh, newspaper. There was no official uh, founding document of uh, the uh, Prade. Um, Fernando VII, um, he's Spain's ugliest king, um, here painted by Goya shortly after uh, his restoration in 1814, was supported in this endeavour by his Portuguese wife, Isabel de Braganza, whom you see on the right in a portrait by uh, Bernardo uh, Lopez. It's actually a posthumous uh, portrait painted in the late 1820s. Um, Isabel, who seems to have been the kind of inspiration behind the foundation of the Prado Museum, uh, did not even uh, live to see it uh, open. But this was the official uh, image of the Queen, uh, promoted in this picture in several copies uh, of it, usually by uh, Bernardo Lopez, who was the son of Vicente Lopez, the better known uh, artist. Is there a light here? I can't really see my notes. <laughs> Thank you. So um, what you see there in the portrait on the right is um, uh, uh, Isabella Braganza, who was Fernando's uh, second wife. He had four wives, Uh, and there she is pointing with a right hand towards the uh, building which became the uh, Museo del Prado, but had originally been intended as a museum of uh, natural sciences, uh, built in the 1780s under the enlightened king Charles III. Thank you very much. Um, with a view to becoming a a sort of academy of the sciences, combined with the botanical gardens at the far end and with the astronomical observatory in the Buen Retiro Park. So it was really a sort of 1780s science park. Um, It didn't quite uh, become that, and uh, as you can see, it eventually became... uh, it became the the Museo del Prado. Um, She's shown here as a sort of madrina of the, uh, of the foundation of the museum, so she points to it with her right hand. With a left hand, if you look uh, carefully, you can just make out the uh, displays, uh, pictures actually laid out uh, on the walls in the way curators do when they're planning their hangs at an art gallery. It's not the kind of interest you want your royal patron to take in your activity uh, in the museum, but she was obviously very, very uh, interested. Their motivation, therefore, was patriotic, uh, educational, and it aimed at fomenting uh, public enjoyment too. Fernando and uh, Isabel were looking to the example of the Louvre, a major public museum founded in the early 1790s, uh, and succeeded in realising the creation of a Spanish painting museum. Not their original idea. It had actually been originally the idea of uh, Napoleon's brother, Joseph Bonaparte, who'd been placed on the throne of Spain uh, by... Uh, by Napoleon. So when the uh, museum opened in uh, 1819, only 311 pictures were on display, all of them Spanish, and they included works by living artists, including uh, José de Madrazo, who was the artistic director of the museum, and uh, Goya, including one of the two pictures that you see here. Uh, we're not entirely sure which one it was. Um, there was a clear sense in Spain that uh, its school of painting was uh, distinctive. It had its own uh, historical character. It born from a specific series of uh, geographical and cultural circumstances. And it was impri- entirely appropriate that the Royal Museum, founded by Fernando VII, should uh, focus specifically on uh, Spanish painting. That's what it did uh, to begin with. The museum opened originally only on Wednesdays, um, from 9 till 2. All the paintings came from the royal palaces in and around Madrid, and there was certainly much to draw on. The Spanish Habsburgs, as the most powerful monarchs on earth, had formed the most spectacular collection, which hung in the royal palace in Madrid, in the Buen Retiro Palace on the other side of the city, very close to where the Prado is today, and then further afield in the Escorial, about 50 kilometers north of Madrid, uh, and La Granja uh, of San Ildefonso. Charles V, whom you see here in Titian's portrait on the left, the founder of the Habsburg dynasty in Spain, had been a patron of Titian and had commissioned several portraits from him, including the great equestrian uh, portraits. Uh, in the Prado, as well as this painting here on the right that came to be known as the Gloria. Uh, you can see the emperor appears uh, up there in a white uh, robe just to the right of the Trinity up above, and then you can just see uh, to the right um, their son, um, the emperor and the empress's uh, son, Philip II. Philip II uh <coughs> also commissioned paintings from uh, Titian, portraits, religious subjects, and of course the celebrated uh, poesie, the mythological fables, six of them, of which one alone, the Venus and Adonis, uh, remains in the Prado, two are of course right now in the National Gallery. The Habsburgs had a fine sensitivity for painting, and this manifested itself most intensively in the person of Philip IV. So he's the grandson of Philip II, whose 45-year reign saw a massive expansion in the uh, Royal Paintings collection. Velázquez, who painted this portrait, was his court painter, and most of the artist's works were painted for him. That's why nearly half of Velázquez's entire oeuvre, about 50 pictures out of a total of 120 or so, is to be found um, in the Prado. Las Meninas, which was on display in the Prado from the very first moment in 1819, is Velázquez's sustained reflection on the art of painting. It is, of course, also a dynastic group portrait with the young Infanta Margarita attended by her ladies-in-waiting, her Meninas, with the king and queen appearing in the mirror. King and Queen are the perennial and privileged viewers of the scene that Velasquez sets before them, observing uh, their daughter, uh, but also, of course, the artist at work. And through the device of the mirror, they become both subjects and objects of the action of seeing. They are literally reflected in painting, and they stand as witnesses to the act of painting. Uh, All all of that sort of theorising around the picture, of course, comes later on, Uh, When the picture was shown uh, at the Prado in 1819, it was perceived really as uh, a a, a dynastic portrait of um, uh, the the, the later Habsburgs. Uh, In addition, of course, to Las Meninas, you also had the Surrender surrender of Breda, which had been brought from uh, the nearby palace of the Buen Retiro, from the Hall of Realms, that ensemble, of pictures commissioned from Madrid artists uh, um, uh, Maíno, Pareda, Zorbaran, and uh, Velázquez himself in the mid-1630s to celebrate the uh, military triumphs of the Spanish crown, most of which, incidentally, had been reversed by the time the pictures were finished and put on the wall. So uh, the surrender of Breda was uh, certainly the most uh, famous of these, and it moved directly from the Buen Retiro Palace into uh, the Prado. This was not a bad way to start your national collection. Very soon after the original 311 Spanish paintings were joined very soon after they were joined by uh, paintings by artists from other schools, uh, Flemish and Italian principally, among them for example Rubens's Three Graces, a work that the artist has painted for himself to celebrate his second marriage, and which the king, Philip IV again, uh, ordered to be bought from Rubens's post-mortem sale. The Prado was, from the start, a very royal museum. All the pictures came from Fernando's own collection, with the exception of a few that he acquired for the museum, but with his own money. He paid the staff, and it was conceived very much as an act of royal generosity to the nation. I think it's important to uh, remember this because it helps explain the very special character of the Prado as a collection, its strengths and its weaknesses. It explains why the Prado has 90 pictures by uh, Rubens, 45 by Titian, 50 by Velazquez, but only one uh, Rembrandt, and no British collection to uh, speak of. Very small Dutch collection. Uh, The Dutch uh, were the enemies. You didn't particularly want their pictures in your royal uh, palace. So very small Dutch collection. Um, There have been some efforts, particularly in the 1960s, to uh, redress the balance, but that was very late in the day, uh, and you certainly couldn't do anything comparable to what had been done Uh, in earlier centuries by the Habsburg and Bourbon uh, monarch collectors. The origins of the National Gallery are, of course, quite different. It was not born from the largesse of a sovereign. It was born through the will of Parliament. Conscious that there was no national collection upon which to establish a national gallery, several influential voices Called for the creation of such an institution in the 1810s and very early '20s. A remarkable opportunity arose in 1824, the year after Birkbeck was founded. <laughs> the financier of Russian origin, John Julius Angerstein, who had a choice collection of European masterpieces, uh, died in 1823, and the Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, was prevailed upon to acquire it with a grant of 60,000 pounds voted by Parliament as the nucleus of a new national gallery. Because there was nowhere to house it, the lease of Angustine's house was also acquired. And so on the 10th of May, 1824, just five years after the Prado had opened, at 100 Pall Mall, that's the one with the asterisk underneath, uh, at 100 Pall Mall, the gallery first opened its doors to the public. The building was modest. The Germans laughed, and the French poured scorn on it. But the idealism that underpinned the creation of the National Gallery was potent. The influential MP, George Agar Ellis, who had vigorously promoted the National Gallery's creation, wrote a few weeks before the opening, there must be no sending for tickets, no asking permission, no shutting it up half the days in the week its doors must always be open, without fee or reward. To be any use, and that's a word that comes up quite often in the early days of the National Gallery, it must be useful. To be any use, it must be accessible and conveniently accessible to all ranks and degrees of men, to the indolent as well as the busy, to the idle as well as the industrious. The only condition was that visitors should be decently dressed. If the exterior was modest, the collection that hung on its walls was not. Angustine's collection included 38 paintings, and among them was Sebastiano del Piombo's Raising of Lazarus. You see it there on the right. Um, <clears throat> as well as Hogarth's Marriage a la Mod, five landscapes by Claude, including the seaport with the embarkation of St. Ursula, shown at lower left, of the big uh, Sebastiano del Piombo. Uh, as you can see in this painting by Frederick Mackenzie, uh, painted in 1834, so by now there's already a few pictures which have been added to, uh, to um, Angustine's collection. This is the uh, new display that we've re- recently done for the Sebastiano raising of Lazarus, with a frame that uh, on the one hand evokes uh, the upper part, uh, in the upper part, uh, copies the original frame of this painting when it was in uh, the cathedral in uh, Grenoble. Sir George Beaumont, a painter and collector, a friend of Constable, in 1826 realised a gift that he had promised to make if a national gallery was founded, and this included uh, 16 paintings from his collection. Uh, among them uh, Canaletto's Stonemason's Yard, what I think is probably Canaletto's most deeply felt uh, Venetian scene, his early uh, ma- his masterpiece of his early maturity, I suppose, um, and Rubens's Landscape with Het stain. So at the genesis of the National Gallery lies a purchase made with a government grant and a donation from a private individual. This has continued to be the character of the collections. Today, of those 2,400 or so paintings that make up the National Gallery, just under half are purchases, and just over half are gifts. Lord Liverpool, who we mentioned a moment ago, chose to have himself portrayed by Thomas Lawrence, holding the bill for the foundation of the gallery. He was committed to the gallery housing not only British art, as some royal academicians wanted, but European paintings too. These, declared his chancellor, Robinson, were not to be the rifled treasures of plundered palaces or the unhallowed spoils of violated altars, but splendid works of art worthy of the nation. That's an ever-so-oblique reference to a country on the other side of the channel. He was also in favour of allowing children and infants, including babies at the breast, into the gallery. They were not allowed, for example, in the BM. Because if this was to be a gallery for all, then those who could not afford nannies should not be barred from visiting. 100 Pall Mall quickly proved inconvenient uh, and too small to house the gallery's growing growing collection. And in 1838, a new building designed by William Wilkins opened on uh, Trafalgar Square. It was grandiose, but not grand, And in the austere spirit of the times, Wilkins made a virtue of reusing bases, columns, and capitals from Carlton House, and sculpture carved but not used for the marble arch then in front of Buckingham Palace. A seated Britannia, for example, was transformed into Minerva, and winged victory became Pictura, with the addition of brushes and palette. The building was only one gallery deep and consisted of five rooms. So uh, that's the bit on the left. The bit on the right housed the Royal Academy. The collection at this stage essentially uh, reflected uh, grand tour and aristocratic collecting in Britain and was composed principally of 16th-century Italian paintings, Raphael, Titian, Correggio, and 17th-century classicizing paintings by Poussin and Claude. But in 1842, a new arrival marked the spectacular start of a new collection at the gallery. Van Eyck's Arnolfini portrait was the first work of what has become one of the finest early Netherlandish collections anywhere. Formerly in the Spanish Royal Collection, it had found its way into the possession of a Scottish soldier, James Hay, subsequently Colonel Hay, who had fought at Vitoria. It may have come from the baggage of King Joseph Bonaparte, uh, who fled from Madrid uh, northwards, and at the Battle of uh, Vitoria, as you all know, abandoned his uh, baggage train, um, and uh, Wellington uh, was subsequently slightly embarrassed to find that there were all these pictures there that had come from the Spanish royal collection. This is one that wasn't uh, in the baggage train that uh, Wellington collected, um, but I suspect it's quite likely that um, James Hay uh, picked it up somewhere on the battlefield there. Thomas Lawrence was very interested in this picture, um, but could not persuade the Prince Regent to buy it, and it remained in uh, James Hay's house with no one taking any notice of it. The gallery acquired it in 1842 on the recommendation of the keeper, William Seeger, and on being put on display, it did all of a sudden attract crowds of visitors. I'll come back to the Arnolfini in just a moment. Um, I couldn't resist showing you this fantastic uh, detail. And that, of course, is the mirror in the middle, and uh, particularly draw your attention to the, uh, the, the passion uh, scenes in those tiny uh, roundels uh, around the convex mirror in the centre. Each of them is perfectly readable, no more than about seven or eight millimetres in uh, diameter. They must have been painted with you know, two or three bristle brushes. With uncharacteristic speed and urgency, some 30 years after the gallery had opened to the public, it was decided that it should have a director. Um, The first to be (laughs) appointed was the painter and connoisseur, Sir Charles Eastlake, president of the Royal Academy, who was to be one of its most distinguished and an extraordinarily active buyer. He was assisted by a keeper, who was a professional art historian, and a travelling agent, the German art dealer Otto Mundler, whose job it was to report on what paintings were available for the gallery to buy and to negotiate uh, purchases. Eastlake himself travelled extensively to acquire pictures and kept very detailed notes of the collections he visited in Germany, Switzerland and Italy, often accompanied by his wife. In 1861, he was able to acquire Pierre's baptism as a supreme example of painting in central Italy before Raphael. He was also able to buy uh, Veronese's great family of King Darius before Alexander. Um, And he was interested in buying works that uh, were not only great masterpieces in their own right. There was a debate uh, at at the National Gallery at this time whether pictures should be bought uh, on their their merit because they were great works or uh, because they told a bigger story. And certainly, uh, Uh, um, uh, Eastlake was on the side of trying to uh, tell uh, the story of the development of Italian art. He was interested in buying works that demonstrated how Italian painting had progressed from late medieval decadence to the splendor of the high Renaissance. And that meant that occasionally uh, he intentionally bought bad paintings. For example, a few years earlier, um, before he bought the Piero, in 1857, Eastlake had been able to acquire a selection of early paintings, early Italian paintings, from the Lombardi Baldi collection in Florence, including the beautiful Duccio uh, triptych we have at the gallery. But very interestingly, together with the Duccio, uh, Eastlake acquired this very early panel by Margaritone di Arezzo and declared in his notes that this unsightly work, in his own words, this unsightly work was bought only for its historical importance. This is what he said, and as showing the rude beginnings from which through nearly two centuries and a half, Italian art slowly advanced to the period of Raphael and his contemporaries. Uh, This brief uh, quote from Eastlake, I think is important evidence of uh, the (coughs) desire of Eastlake at the National Gallery to form a compelling narrative of the history of art, uh, a positivistic narrative ultimately Vazarian uh, uh, in its uh, philosophy. Uh, Eastlake's directorship with that of his two successors, uh, William Boxall and Frederick Burton, marks the golden age of acquisitions for the National Gallery. Boxall was able to purchase the superb collection of Dutch paintings formed by Prime Minister Robert Peel, including Hobbema's Avenue at Middle Harness, thus establishing the basis for what was to become, and still remains, the finest and most representative collection of Dutch paintings in any museum. If there was already a fine Italian Renaissance collection and a very good uh, Dutch representation, then Spain too uh, should be properly represented in the National Gallery. And many opportunities arose over the course of the second half of the 19th century, particularly in the mid-1850s with the sale of Louis-Philippe's Gallery Español uh, here in London uh, at Christie's. I'm not going to go into um, uh, detail uh, all these uh, bits of the National Gallery uh, history and its formation, but I'm just going to pick up a couple of of things. Um, In 1906, for example, uh, the fledgling Spanish collection was given a massive boost by the gift to the gallery of Velazquez's Roque Venus. Uh, Interestingly this was the first major acquisition by the newly formed uh, National Art Collections Fund, a charity established to help museums acquire works of art. As you all know the painting was famously attacked um, by the suffragette Mary Richardson with a small hatchet in March 1914 in protest at the imprisonment of Emmeline Pankhurst. She became known predictably as Slasher Mary, And there can be no doubt that her notorious action uh, helped to increase the fame of this picture and to draw attention to the Spanish collection in the National Gallery. And then a few years later, trustees keenly aware of the absence of modern French painting in the gallery's collections and of the very limited opportunities for acquiring such works from British collections, set out on a trip across the channel to buy paintings from the sale of the estate of Edgar Degas in Paris. The German guns could be heard uh, booming on the outskirts of Paris, but the sale proceeded. This was 1918. And the gallery was able to acquire several important 19th century French paintings, including works by Delacroix and, and several fragments of Manet's execution of the Emperor Maximilian. The gallery has continued in its efforts to represent the variety of European schools of painting, drawing on the tradition which uh, aimed uh, as an institution essentially uh, formed and run by art historians to uh, tell a coherent uh, narrative of the history of European art from medieval times right down to uh, the early 1900s. And it's continued in its efforts to represent the variety of European painting schools by acquiring works from, neglected, uh, from areas neglected by British collectors. Uh, German painting, for example, particularly during the directorships of Michael Levy and Neil McGregor, uh, Scandinavian painting, uh, European plein air painting. More recently still, the gallery has wanted to extend its remit to non-European painting in the Western tradition, hence the acquisition just a few years ago, for example, of the American George Bellows' Men of the Docks of 1912. So let's head back to Spain for a moment. We talked about the royal origins of the Prado Museum in uh, 18. Uh, Something very significant happened at the Prado in 1872. A significant shift in the Prado's collecting happened at a stroke following the incorporation of an entire museum in the Prado called the Museo Nacional de Pintura, uh, the National Museum of Painting. Remember, the Prado was known as the Royal Museum of Painting. The National Museum uh, was also known as the Museo de la Trinidad. There are very, very few images of it. It's a museum that only existed between the 1830s and 1872. So in the mid-1830s, following the nationalization of church properties in Spain, following the uh, model of uh, France, thousands of paintings from the monasteries and convents of Castile had been brought to the convent of the Trinidad, near Atocha Station in the center of Madrid, where the new National Museum was established. These uh, included El Greco's paintings from the Doña Maria de Aragon altarpiece of around uh, 1600, painted for Madrid. They also included uh, Juan Bautista Maíno's masterpiece, his ensemble of canvases for the altarpiece of the Church of the Dominican Convent of San Pedro Mártir in Toledo of 1613. This is one of them, some of you may have seen it. We brought them over to the National Gallery um, a a, a couple of Christmases ago, a pair pair from that uh, ensemble. The joining of the two museums (coughs) into what became the Museo Nacional del Prado, because the Prado at that point lost its royal title, it was a nationalised museum after the First Republic, Um, (coughs) was no longer the property of the monarch. It meant also that at a stroke, the Prado doubled in size to over 5,000 paintings. Whereas up to this moment, the proportion of foreign paintings, particularly Flemish and Italian, those that had come from the Spanish royal collection, was fairly high, the massive influx of Spanish religious paintings in 1872 weighted the Prado's collections hugely in favor of uh, Spanish painting. Interestingly, for example, in the Prado, up until 1872, El Greco had been represented essentially by portraits. That's what was in... Uh, They're the kinds of pictures that were in the uh, Spanish royal collection. Uh, From 1872, in addition to those portraits, you also had these large uh, religious paintings brought in from uh, Toledo and from Madrid. Uh, Just as I did with uh, the National Gallery, a couple more examples of major acquisitions in much more recent times to give you a sense of how the Prado has played to its strengths in its purchase policy by focusing on Spanish painting and seeking to provide as complete a picture of the history of painting in Spain as possible. So in 1991, for example, thanks to a huge bequest of cash and Madrid real estate, from a lawyer called uh, Villascusa, the Prado was able to buy a whole group of works, uh, including uh, Sanchez Cotan's spectacular still life of 1603. When I uh, joined the Prado, there was a, a bit of a mythology around this picture. The, the, the funds came partly from the Villa Scusa bequests, but they also came from the proceeds of the sale of the Great Velázquez Exhibition Catalogue of 1990. Now, some of you may have used this in your uh, studies or in your reading. Um, the Prado Velázquez Exhibition Catalogue is an exceptional uh, publication with the most spectacular quality uh, reproductions. And uh, they sold a huge number of them. The Prado doesn't even know how many uh, copies of that catalogue it sold, but it did so well that um, from the proceeds uh, it was able to um, acquire at least part of uh, Sanchez Cotan's 1603 uh, spectacular Still Life. Some of you may remember this picture from uh, years ago. We brought it over to London for the great Spanish Still Life show in 1995. More recently, while I was um, deputy director there, um, there was a gift from the Vareth Fisa family in 2013 of a group of medieval panel paintings uh, from Catalan Romanesque to Castilian High Gothic, uh, together with a complete um, artesonado uh, ceiling from a church uh, in Leon, all of which served to strengthen this part of the collection, which had not traditionally been uh, a strong one. Um, If you think of the Spanish Royal Collection being essentially the creation of the Habsburgs who were buying mostly contemporary art or 16th century art, um, this kind of painting uh, really didn't feature uh, in the Prado. Even with the incorporation of the Museo Nacional de la Trinidad uh, in the Prado in 1872, there was relatively little uh, medieval painting that entered the the collections. But the Prado has uh, tried quite hard in recent decades to uh, strengthen this bit of the national story that it tries to tell. So the stated intention of the founding fathers of both the National Gallery and the Prado was to offer examples of fine paintings from the past to serve as models for the artists of the present, to give them ready access to masterpieces from the European painting tradition so that the modern national schools might be improved. I said before that the Van uh, Eyck-Arnolfini portrait was acquired in 1842. It went on show in 1843. Its impact on a group of young English artists, who were then in their late teens or early 20s, cannot be overestimated. At that time, John Everett Millet, William Holman Hunt were students at the Royal Academy, just a few rooms from where the Arnolfini portrait was hanging. You'll remember I showed you that plan of the National Gallery. Well, the whole east end of the building was actually the Royal Academy. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, These young artists were deeply struck by the picture's highly wrought character, the faithfulness to natural appearances, the perceived symbolism of the objects included in the scene, especially the mirror, the use of natural and reflected light, and the moral seriousness of the subject matter. These qualities they sought to emulate in their earliest Pre-Raphaelite uh, paintings. Here are two of them. Uh, there is a show on at the National Gallery, which I encourage you to come and see on this very subject, uh, Van Eyck and the Pre-Raphaelites. These qualities, I said, they sought to emulate in their earliest Pre-Raphaelite paintings, such as Mariana by Malay on the left, uh, Holman Hunt's Awakening Conscience on the right. So much so that rather than Pre-Raphaelites, one critic suggested very early on that they should be called the Pre-Eykians. Turner was a frequenter of the gallery and was old enough to have known some of its pictures when they were still privately owned. When he died in 1851, he bequeathed to the nation, meaning the National Gallery, the largest donation of works it has ever received, made up of 100 finished pictures, 182 unfinished pictures, and more than 19,000 drawings and sketches. In his will, Turner specified that two of his paintings should hang with two of the gallery's clauds, both of which were pictures that, he, that had belonged to Angerstein and which Turner had admired since he had first seen them. As you all know, Turner had aimed at imitating the effects of Claude's sunsets from an early date, although he had initially despaired that he would ever be able to paint anything like them. He felt that he had come close to success in Dido Building Carthage of 1815, on the left, <clears throat> and this work still hangs beside Claude's Seaport, painted a century and a half earlier, as Turner intended, and in strict conformity to the stipulation made in his will. Much more recently, the Gallery has run uh, artists in residence programmes, and uh, from the 1980s, an associate artists programme, which has involved uh, several of the distinguished artists of uh, the British art scene, uh, coming to spend time at the National Gallery and produce a body of works in response, to the gallery's own uh, collection. Uh, Paul Orrego, uh, rather early on. Uh, Peter Blake, a bit later on. Ron Muick, and most recently, as you can see here in the, uh, in the photo, uh, George Shaw, whose show, uh, My Back to Nature, as he called this, uh, opened about a year and a half ago and is still touring the country. Um, George Shaw uh, was a, an, ideal, um, an ideal associate artist, because he's extremely chatty, uh, and extremely articulate, and so he was able to talk about his interest in the National Gallery's uh, collections to art students, uh, to uh, visitors, to the public, uh, to give talks and uh, express his uh, enthusiasm for uh, the paintings, the, the the kinds of thing that the uh, National Gallery painting, paintings had meant to him since he was a child. And then to produce uh, a, a group of works for an exhibition in the uh, Sunley Room. He was particularly uh, interested in the Titians, in the uh, sort of Arcadian landscapes uh, represented in the collection, um, you know, pictures by, um, by uh, Poussin and by Domenichino. And uh, when he came to produce his uh, exhibition, he produced these three pictures, which um, are uh, direct responses to uh, the two Titians you've just seen and, of course, the uh, death of Actian. Uh, which may also have been one of the poesia intended for Philip II, but never uh, arrived in Spain. The Prados uh, collection enables one to perceive how the works in the royal collection nourish the imagination of uh, later artists, and I'm not talking just about uh, the museum uh, following its existence in uh, its establishment in 1819. One of the most um, powerful and unmistakable examples, of course, is the direct influence of Las Meninas on uh, Goya's family of Charles IV, painted in about 1800. Goya was court painter to the Bourbons in the same way as Velasquez had been to the Habsburgs. And when Goya was commissioned to paint the monarch and his family, he self-consciously turned to Velasquez, adopting several of his visual strategies the inclusion of the artist at work on a large canvas in the background over there on the left, the presence of other paintings hanging on the wall, the use of light to create several points of focus in the ensemble of figures, and so on. Another clamorous example is the defining influence of the 3rd of May uh, by Goya uh, on any number of much later artists. Two examples will suffice, one very well known, the other not so much. This is the execution of uh, General Torrijos on the beach at Malaga, showing the liberal uh, general and politician being summarily executed by a military firing squad after landing on the beach at Malaga with the intention of leading a rebellion against the absolutist and repressive government of Fernando VII. The event took place in 1831, but the painting was commissioned in 1887 by the Spanish Liberal government of Prime Minister Sagasta from the then director of the Prado, also a painter, Antonio Gisbert, for the Prado. So this is a picture commissioned from the director of the Prado, for the Prado, uh, of uh, an event which had taken place uh, 50 years earlier. Uh, Gisbert, of course, took as his fundamental reference point for this gigantic painting, six meters uh, across, uh, Goya's dramatic work, which hung just a few rooms away. Although Spanish painting of the 19th century is little known outside of Spain, um, usually in art history courses you leap from Goya to Picasso as though nothing happened in between the two, it is important to realize that the Prado is a fundamental source, a fundamental reference point for all Spanish painters in this period, in the 19th century. From the Madrazos to Fortuny, from Vicente Lopez Uh, right down to Sorolla. And Picasso too, of course, fits into this story. Um, In his great uh, denunciatory picture of the destruction of Guernica in 1937, he alludes very clearly to uh, Goya's Third of May, particularly with the figure on the uh, far right. You may not know it, but Picasso was himself director of the Prado in 1936, he was made uh, Honorary Director of the Prado by the Spanish uh, Republican uh, government, and he's actually painting this picture uh, as Director of the Prado, although he's in Paris, he never actually turned up for work, I have to say. Uh, in later life, he said uh, he was still Director of the Prado because no one had ever told him he wasn't. <coughs> but he was painting uh, this, uh, this uh, picture, of course, in the uh, war years, at a time, of course, when the Prado was empty of pictures, 1937. Um, <coughs> and the, uh, uh, during the Civil War, of course, the uh, Prado and the major uh, Madrid collections were uh, evacuated uh, from Madrid. Um, the Prado masterpieces were taken first to uh, Valencia, and then uh, into Catalonia, and eventually, in, in 1938, to Switzerland. When uh, General Franco um, uh, defeated the Republican forces, uh, the works were called back uh, to Madrid, and very interestingly, as the trains were bringing back the pictures from uh, Geneva to uh, Madrid, um, there were trains going in the other direction, of course, as the the Second World War was uh, beginning. So uh, the Prado was uh, evacuated of all its works and uh, it's a very interesting moment because at this point a whole series of protocols are established for uh, handling uh, works of art for evacuations uh, in time of conflict and these of course were uh, protocols and lessons that were very useful uh, subsequently to uh, a whole series of European uh, museums. That's a view of the uh, the back side of the Prado, with pictures being uh, removed, and there's one of those haunting uh, images of the interior of the Grand Gallery of, uh, of the Prado, uh, with uh, sandbags uh, covering some of the statues, for example, but all the pictures gone from the walls. Uh, in London, uh, it was during the war years that the uh, gallery, empty of its pictures, cemented a very important relationship with the public. It's rather ironic that the National Gallery's relation with the public became particularly significant and strong when the pictures were away. By the end of the uh, 1930s, uh, mass aerial bombings seemed very likely, and the gallery uh, planned for the evacuation of its collection Um, in case of war, by the mid-1930s, sorry. Uh, In 1938, for example, at the time of the Munich crisis, uh, the gallery decided to run a small trial uh, in advance of uh, a necessary evacuation later on. Uh, This consisted of taking eight small pictures from the walls, putting them in the back of a taxi, driving round Leicester Square twice, (laughs) and going back to the gallery. (laughs) A few days before war was declared, Uh, the entire collection was transferred by train and road to a secret location uh, outside London. Um, I just did before, but um, this was a very serious logistical operation, and one which, as I said before, the um, protocols established in Spain were actually quite useful. In 1940, when invasion seemed likely, it was proposed that the collection should be taken abroad to Canada or America. But uh, Churchill, as you'll recall, uh, famously declared to the director at the time, Kenneth Clark, bury them in the bowels of the earth, but not a picture shall leave these islands. And they were taken up to the slate mines of Manod in North Wales, uh, which had stable, a stable uh, environment to guarantee their uh, safe preservation. Two things uh, happened uh, back at the empty gallery. Um, Myra Hess, offered to hold weekly concerts to provide the London public with musical and spiritual sustenance, as well as employment for the capital's uh, musicians, an offer that Kenneth Clark took up with uh, enthusiasm, responding that they should not be weekly, but daily lunchtime concerts. Um, here she appears playing the appassionata. I'm not quite sure how you can tell she's <laughs> playing the appassionata, but that's what the caption says. Um, <clears throat> so she uh, organized uh, some 1,600 concerts, uh, beginning just a few weeks after war was declared and carrying on into 1946. It is fascinating. We celebrated um, Myra Hess Day in October just a few weeks ago, uh, and we put up a plaque in the Barry Rooms, the very rooms where you can see her there. I was looking at the program that she played on the very first of these uh, occasions. She played a, a number, about 100 concerts herself. Um, uh, Lots of other musicians were involved as well. And just a few weeks after war's been declared on Germany, uh, Myra Hess, uh, 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 of German uh, origin herself, is playing a public concert with an entirely Germanic programme. Very extraordinary. Um, You can see the uh, pictures have been removed. Um, That is the frame of a picture that some of you uh, will know. it's the uh, Palo Strozzi, the altarpiece by Lorenzo Costa and Gianfrancesco uh, Um, But the picture, of course, uh, was in North Wales. In 1942, some of you will know this story, a letter appeared in the Times which expressed regret that there was no art to be seen in London, uh, in the gallery, and advanced an ingenious proposal. Because London's face is scarred and bruised these days, we need more than ever to see beautiful things," wrote the correspondent. Like many, another one hung- uh, like many another one hungry for aesthetic refreshment, I would welcome the opportunity of seeing a few of the hundreds of the nation's masterpieces now stored in a safe place. Would the trustees of the National Gallery consider whether it were not wise and well to risk one picture for exhibition each week? Arrangements could be made to transfer it quickly to a strong room in case of an alert, Music lovers are not denied their Beethoven, but picture lovers are denied their Rembrandts, just at a time when such beauty is most potent for good. Well, Clark uh, took up uh, the challenge, and of course, that's the origin of, in 1942, uh, the Picture of the Month series. Every month, a distinguished work would be brought to London, shown during the day, and then taken down into the vaults at night for safekeeping. The first picture that was chosen, uh, many of you will know this, the first picture of the month that was chosen was uh, Titian's uh, Noli Maitangeri. Um <clears throat> The uh, alternative which had been offered uh, when a sort of public survey, a sort of primitive public survey had been done, was uh, El Greco's um, Agony in the Garden. But Clark thought that this was a studio picture, not actually by El Greco himself, and that is not the kind of thing that um, should have been shown to a hungry public in 1942. So this was the first picture that was, uh, that was shown. Um, <clears throat> in considering the subject matter of the painting, the Magdalene's desire to cling to the body of her beloved saviour, who was about to depart the earth, it's difficult not to see the emotion, emotional poignancy of the choice when so many Londoners had lost loved ones in the bombings or on the front line or had husbands, fathers, sons and brothers fighting the enemy in France and Flanders. And another thing that sort of comes to mind this is such an important moment for the National Gallery and its relationship with the public. Um, Kenneth Clark, of course, was director at this time, and Kenneth Clarke's um, directorship was, was a fraught one. It was very brilliant in many ways, but also had, had many, uh, uh, many problems associated with it. Um, but Clarke really came into his own at the National Gallery when the pictures were away. It was quite, uh, it was quite a remarkable um, phenomenon, but his kind of understanding of what was um, desired uh, by the public, and his response to it uh, was very remarkable during those uh, particular years. Um, We're going to come up uh, to more recent times. Um, The National Gallery, uh, of course, uh, had uh, an extraordinary uh, expansion in 1991 when the Sainsbury Wing uh, opened. You can see it there on the corner of the uh, square, you'll um, recognize that that's the building that is currently um, – that is the, the, the Saint's Ring. So this is the, the Wilkins building. We were looking at the plan of this, this, this part here. Uh, this, of course, was all added uh, later on, um, and the, the Saint's Ring was added in 1991. Um, the National Gallery needed to grow, to host its collections, to provide the kinds of facilities that a modern uh, museum visiting audience uh, required, the gallery had no proper um, uh, auditorium, it had no proper dedicated space for uh, exhibitions, it wanted to show its Renaissance collection uh, much more uh, effectively, and so uh, thanks to the generosity of the Sainsbury Brothers, and without entering into the, uh, the whole story of how we got to uh, the uh, commission from uh, Venturi Scott Brown uh, to build it, uh, the Sainsbury's stepped up and uh, made it possible for the Sainsbury Wing uh, to be built. Um, <clears throat> that's the uh, exterior, which of course, as you know, uh, imitates the uh, facade by uh, William Wilkins, and as you look across uh, the facade of the Saints Ring, it starts to take on the character of the buildings along uh, Pall Mall. But of course, um, it's got this very grand uh, staircase, um, these sweeping bold gestures like the sheer glass wall along the grand staircase uh, facing uh, Trafalgar Square, uh, the superb uh, toplit uh, galleries housing the uh, Renaissance collections, uh, recalling, of course, both uh, John Soane's uh, rooms at Dulwich and the airy Pietra Serena and white plaster interiors uh, of 15th-century Florentine churches. These uh, galleries and this was really a new phenomenon for, uh, for, for, uh, for the National Gallery, these galleries were designed around the collection according to a principle that focused on connections between artists and schools through a series of threshold vistas that invited the visitor to move from Masaccio's Florence to Van Eyck's Bruges, from Bellini's Venice to uh, the Augsburg of Dura. Uh, as I said before, the Sainsbury Ring provided the National Gallery for the first time uh, with uh, dedicated uh, exhibition space, a proper uh, restaurants, um, a new foyer at street level, literally, uh, as there is no step to enter the building. It was a very, very different conception of an entrance to a museum than uh, William Wilkins's, which has the grand temple uh, staircase. Uh, it was reflective, of course, of uh, the Gallery's desire to be accessible, to be approachable. At a recent seminar uh, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Sainsbury, uh, Sainsbury Wing, um, speakers reflected, among other things, on the remarkable character of the gift of the Sainsbury Brothers, uh, which ushered in a new chapter of philanthropic giving to cultural institutions in Britain, as well as the significance that the galleries have had on the understanding uh, and the teaching of the Renaissance in universities in the UK and beyond. And I'm sure um, the staff will agree with that. Um, Briefly, the Prado uh, also uh, had a necessity to uh, expand in this same period, uh, but it took rather longer. Um, there was a lot of controversy around the Prado's uh, extension. Uh, this is the church that sits behind the uh, main Prado building, and the remains of the 17th-century cloister of the Hieronymus uh, Church. And it was decided that this is where the Prado would uh, grow. Uh, the uh, commission was from Raphael, uh, The com- commission was to Raphael Moneo to build the Prado's uh, extension. And the Prado, in a way, tried to do what the National Gallery had done with the uh, Ring in order to provide the kinds of facilities that a modern museum needs to attend to the public, but also the facilities it needs to uh, store its pictures and to uh, conserve its pictures. So that's the the extension uh, as it appeared in 2007 uh, when it was opened uh, to the public. You can see that the uh, cloister has essentially been encased in this, uh, this elegant uh, box, Moneo's Cube, as it was called uh, at the time, uh, encasing uh, the uh, cloister, which you see here, which was completely dismantled and then completely uh, rebuilt, uh, covered over, so it became a covered cloister, which had never been uh, originally, but of course preserving wonderful uh, natural light uh, inside it and becoming uh, a showcase for uh, the great uh, Leone portraits, uh, the sculpted and bronze portraits of uh, members of uh, the family of Charles V. Um, interestingly, just down, if you look at the centre, uh, you can see there's the, uh, the, the sort of lantern uh, looking down, and if you go down a floor, uh, you're down into the, uh, into the uh, exhibition galleries down below, which have natural light coming from above, even though they're, they're, they are actually underground. And there you can see uh, Gisbert's uh, large um, uh, uh, fufilamiento picture on the left. Um, The uh, new building also provided space for uh, conservation. Um, uh, These are, uh, I think now, the most spectacular uh, conservation spaces in any uh, museum. And you can see the scale on which the Prado um, had become used to working. These enormous uh, 16th century uh, panels um, you can see um, you know, there's an uh, Agostino Carracci in the background. Um, the, you can probably just make out Murillo's Immaculate Conception uh, a little bit further back. But um, these are very large pictures, many of which came from the Trinidad uh, Museum, uh, all these large pictures that came from the Spanish uh, Royal Collection. It's really another order of work uh, compared to, uh, for example, what we have uh, at the National Gallery. I never forget Pierre Rosenberg, at the uh, great French uh, art historian, also director of the Louvre, saying, uh, the National Gallery, wonderful collection of small pictures. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'd like to uh, finish, if I may, um, just with two uh, items. Um, of course, uh, museums uh, tell lots of stories. Uh, they tell the stories of art, uh, they tell the stories of uh, collecting, they tell the stories of uh, royalty, uh, they tell the stories of relations between states, They tell the stories of uh, individual artists, often artists who uh, travel. Uh, And we have lots of different ways of telling stories now. And I just wanted to highlight two, one from the National Gallery and one from uh, the Prado. Um, We're we're all grappling in museum as to how best to use uh, digital uh, and the opportunities that digital uh, give us in order to extend our reach, in order to engage Uh, large, uh, broader uh, audiences. And at the gallery, we've been, I think, quite pioneering uh, in doing uh, Facebook Live uh, directly from uh, the gallery. Uh, In the middle of August, uh, we did uh, the Van Gogh Sunflowers uh, Facebook Live, which involved a live link-up between the five institutions that have uh, one of the uh, five surviving sunflowers by Van Gogh, so beginning here going over to Amsterdam, then to Munich, then to Philadelphia, and then to uh, the Sompo Museum in uh, Tokyo, and doing this as a live uh, relay um, in the middle of the day uh, on, on, uh, on Facebook Live. Well, the astonishing thing is that um, the, the, the reach uh, which we were able to uh, have with, with uh, Van Gogh Sunflower's Facebook Live Uh, is sort of unprecedented. We we simply can't achieve anything remotely similar, either with real physical visits uh, to the gallery or, indeed, through uh, television. Uh, Because in a matter of uh, hours, um, the Facebook Live relay had been seen by uh, nearly six million people. Uh, And together with the Facebook Live... Uh, we worked uh, together with uh, Facebook. This is my former colleague Axel Ruger. You'll remember him, some of you, I'm sure. Who's uh, now director of the Van Gogh Museum. So he took up the story after our uh, curator Chris Rieppel had talked about the 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 London National Gallery, the London National Gallery, um, London National Gallery uh, Sunflowers. Um, at the same time, um, Facebook had done a special feature, uh, which involved a sort of virtual uh, exhibition of the five Sunflowers together. I think it's highly unlikely, I think, we'll ever manage to uh, bring them physically into a single space. Um, so you can see them inside a bouncy castle in uh, this, uh, this Facebook uh, recreation. Um, so you can actually enter the space, you can approach the pictures, you can uh, pull back, you can compare things, you can go right up close. Uh, and at the same time, you can listen to, um, uh, uh, you can listen to uh, Willem van Gogh, uh, 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 his commentary. Uh, uh, on the the pictures, one of which of course he recalls in the family uh, collection when he was a child. So the kinds of stories that we can tell in our national museums, of course, become very uh, varied and very interesting if we find the right way of using um, the technology. Finally, my very last uh, group of slides, Um, you, you will, I think, find these quite remarkable. Um, this is a story from a few years ago. We're now at the Prado, no longer in the National Gallery. Uh, on the left is the Prado's Mona Lisa, on the right is the Mona Lisa. Um, this was a picture that was in the Spanish Royal Collection from the mid-17th century. We don't know exactly when it entered the collection, so it, it, it's an early copy, um, with the uh, significant difference that, of course, it has uh, none of the background that the Mona Lisa in the Prado, uh, in the Louvre, has. When the Louvre put on their Leonardo exhibition a few years ago, uh, they asked us at the Prado if we would be prepared to do a technical examination of our picture to establish um, uh, what it was. Um, So we did a lot of technical examination. We did some very interesting infrared work, which allows us to penetrate the paint surface and see the underdrawing. And what became apparent was that there were changes in the underdrawing that corresponded to uh, changes in the underdrawing of the original, all of which suggested that uh, the artist who painted the picture on the left um, had been making his picture at the same time as Leonardo was uh, making the Mona Lisa, as it were, on the easel next door to the one that uh, Leonardo was, uh, was working on. The press were very keen to uh, know later whether we considered that if there was any single brushstroke on the Paradis picture that might be by Leonardo. Um, we decided to leave that one open. But the really interesting thing was uh, this black background. We found this very strange. What a strange response to uh, the Mona Lisa uh, original. So we uh, examined it, of course, in x ray, and some quite interesting things emerged. There did seem to be those forms uh, underneath. Uh, when we uh, did the technical examination of the pigment, the black pigment that was used to paint the background, it became apparent that it was pigment from uh, much later, uh, probably uh, later 18th century, and so we began very, very carefully to open up windows into uh, the background, into the black background, and that's what you're going to see. So on the left are those initial uh, tests uh, removing the uh, later black uh, background, and these astonishing uh, windows being opened up onto a landscape which appeared to be very, very fully uh, painted up. Uh, You can see on the right, there's the next uh, uh, picture in the sequence where uh, we're revealing uh, more of that fully painted background. The bridge uh, that appears in uh, the Mona Lisa in Paris uh, is also there. In fact, a very, very, very close rendition of uh, the landscape. And if we compare, um, finally, the completely uh, cleaned uh, Prado picture on the left with the Mona Lisa on the right. Uh, you can see that in fact it's actually a very, very close uh, repetition of uh, of the uh, original picture in uh, in in Paris. Um, uh, there are some slight differences, but but fundamentally, I think you can earn, learn an awful lot from uh, the picture on the left about the picture on the right. Uh, the Louvre has not wanted to do anything at all to this picture. You can see it's, it's extremely dirty. It's got a very, very discolored uh, dark uh, varnish on the surface to the point where she seems to be wearing a black veil. And uh, some historians have proposed that she's in mourning or that she may have lost a child. Um, of course, once you see what the picture um, probably does look like uh, in its clean state uh, from looking at the prior copy, you get a much better sense of what, that's, uh, of what that is like. It's not a black veil um, at all. Um, What I suppose we weren't quite ready for was the sort of media hysteria around uh, Leonardo uh, and around uh, what turned out to be an extremely interesting, uh, very early, the first probably copy of uh, the the Leonardo, uh, Mona Lisa. So when we did uh, present it to the public, it was a complete uh, scramble uh, by a huge number of journalists who uh, came along and uh, it even made the front page of the New York Times, which was a fantastic coup for us um, at the prior But I think I just want to finish by saying, I suppose, that our museums have become um, such large uh, organisations. There's such a huge amount of public and media uh, interest in uh, what we do, and I think, generally speaking, what we do is, is actually quite interesting. Um, and uh, it's for museums to find the best way to use the digital technology to uh, collaborate with the media, to continue telling those stories, uh, to continue uh, transmitting that content, uh, to continue engaging uh, uh, the public uh, in ways that are good uh, for us uh, and that are good for the general public. Thank you very much indeed.
0: for an incredibly engaging talk and very wide ranging and um, getting us to think anew about these museums and their histories. Uh, Gabriela has very generously offered to answer uh, a (coughs) small number of questions uh, for about five minutes. And after that, we will break up and go um, and enjoy the reception uh, outside the lecture theater here. I should say before you ask a question that we are recording the event. Don't let that inhibit you. Um, But, uh, yeah, that's why we have the microphone. So can I ask if there are any questions? Who'd like to start?
1: I wondered whether the National Gallery has ever had discussions with the Royal Collection and what the relationship is between the Royal Collection. Uh, well' it's, it's been a very um, a very good relationship I'd say um, you'll recall that um, Prince Albert wanted some of the pictures from the royal collection to come to uh, the National Gallery so some of them uh, did in the uh, in the mid 19th century uh, we had on loan uh, to the gallery some very important um, pictures from the royal collection for a very long time a wonderful gossart um, Adam and Eve uh, for example um, and I have to say, whenever we do uh, uh, an exhibition and we ask for the um, Royal Collection's uh, support uh, with uh, a loan or with technical assistance from them, um, it's always readily uh, given. So I think the relationship is, is, is very positive and I think also, um, you know, on the level of um, uh, collaborating over um, conservation issues, you know, there's a lot of toing and fro between the studios um, at Windsor and the, um, and the studios at uh, Trafalgar Square. Hi, Sebastiano del Piombo, um, the recent exhibition. um, There was a digital reproduction of a church in Rome, which was absolutely stunning. Are there any proposals to reproduce um, other churches in other parts of the world, in (laughs) other exhibitions? (laughs) Well, it's a very interesting uh, question. when we were setting up that exhibition, um, the first works to come in were um, a cast of the Vatican Pietà by Michelangelo, um, a cast of the Resurrected Christ from um, the Minerva in Rome, and this reproduction uh, of the Borgherini uh, Chapel in San Pietro in Montorio. And I thought, all of a sudden, what am I doing at the National Gallery? I'm filling it up with uh, casts and uh, reproductions. Of course, eventually, the real pictures also. Uh, joined the exhibition. It just seems to me that um, the way that uh, things are moving in terms of uh, digital uh, reproduction, um, the very accurate rendition of uh, relief on the surfaces of works of art, the extraordinarily accurate uh, capturing of color values uh, in, uh, in digital photography, um, that I think we need to think again about the, uh, the value of uh, copies Uh, in a sort of educational context. Um, I think the debate really shifted uh, when you'll remember that uh, a a great uh, one-to-one reproduction uh, was made of the great Veronese, the uh, marriage of Cana in Paris, and was taken back to the Palladio refectory in Venice from which the original painting had come. So the reproduction went into its its place. And uh, all those who had scoffed uh, previously about uh, you know, the, the, the use of reproductions and so on, suddenly, uh, I think, a lot of them anyway, uh, began to wonder whether there might not be something more in this, uh, because you'll never get the Veronese original back. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the Veronese, uh, when you see it in the Louvre, is not seen in the same circumstances for which the artist uh, intended it. So you can see the real picture in the Louvre, uh, you can see a very, very high quality reproduction in the original setting, and there's a lot you can gain, of course, in both uh, places. Something's been lost on both sides, of course, but there's much has been gained uh, on, on both sides as well. So I think, um, I think we just need to be much more open uh, as to how useful these reproductions uh, can be. In the case of the Borgerini Chapel, I mean, that was a very, very significant part of the story that the exhibition was telling, the special relationship, uh, the artistic relationship between Michelangelo and Sebastiano, which begins with the Viterbo Pietà, then goes to the raising of Lazarus and had its third pillar, as it were, in the Borgerini Chapel, and the only way of representing that was photographically. So you could have done it on a panel, you could have done a large uh, photograph on the wall, or you could attempt uh, a a sort of reconstruction uh, of the uh, chapel, which gives a sense of the space, gives a sense of the surface, um, which I think was, I think, a rather good way of dealing with it. Is
0: there one more question? Can I ask you about uh, attitudes towards conservation? Because <coughs> that's quite striking, that transformation. And obviously, you knew that it wasn't Leonardo, so it's not like touching the Lisa. Yeah. But it's quite a, a radical thing to do Absolutely. to decide to, g- to go ahead with that. Um, what are the kind of differences between the various museums on that at present? I mean, are people more conservative on the whole? I know that the National Gallery in the past has done some things which were at the time, controversials and litigations and, and so forth. Are people more cautious now, do you think? I think generally there, people
1: uh, are very much more cautious yeah. than, 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 than we were in the past, partly because uh, we understand much more, uh, partly because um, people are much more attentive to what we do in museums as well. Um, I'd also say that there's a much more, not, not a completely uniform, but there's a much more broadly understood sense of how you deal with these issues. There's much more contact internationally between yeah. Uh, conservatives. So it's, it's very likely that a position that you'll take um, in the National Gallery will be a very similar position that might be taken at the Getty Museum, or um, you know, at the Hermitage, for, for that matter. So I think broadly now there's there's a much uh, there's a, there's much more common ground in the way that uh, conservators and uh, curators try and confront these uh, these these questions. The other thing is, uh, of course, good restorers don't damage pictures. Um, and I think you know the the, the level of training of restorers uh, is now very very high in lots of uh, in lots of places. And of course, you know, we 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 publish these things. We need to discuss them. We need to be able to justify what we do. We try and create some consensus around what we do. So um, you know, before any decision was taken um, on the on the Prado Mona Lisa, um, you know, lots of uh, work sessions were held. Um, specialists from outside came along. We presented the evidence. We had to be completely confident that the, the black paint was much later. Uh, it wasn't put on you know, in Leonardo's lifetime or, or shortly afterwards. Um, otherwise, you know, I don't think we'd have been as bold as to do that. Thank you.
0: Good, well, a final round of applause, please, for our speaker. You're all very welcome to join us for a drink now.